This is The Road Less Travelled, presented by Nikki Shea. Hello there, welcome to this week's edition of The Road Less Travelled podcast. It's Nikki back in the seat with you this week, and a warm welcome to you. If you're a regular to the show, welcome back. If you're new to the podcast, then a very warm welcome to The Road Less Travelled, where we hope to bring you some adventures of bits and pieces of us travelling on the road, some locations that we visit, a bit of history and a tale to tell as well. And we'll also throw in a couple of recipes, some tips, all about getting out there and exploring Australia, whether it's uh, an overnight stay, a weekend, a week, or whatever it may be. We hope to give you some enthusiasm to get out there and share the fantastic country that is Australia. Now, if you'd like to follow what we've been up to, you can do that by jumping onto Facebook and checking out the Road Less Travelled podcast and also follow us on Instagram, which is the Road Less Travelled podcast 2021. That's where you'll find us. If you're having trouble searching for previous uh, episodes of the Road Less Travelled podcast, you can jump onto the website Fat Cat Media. That's Fat Cat with a PH, just trying to be trendy. Fatcatmedia.com.au. And you can also do a Google search too for the Road Less Travel podcast with Nikki Shea, that's me. And uh, that's where you'll be sure to find us. If you're tuning in from Radio Bayside down in the Bayside suburbs of Mordialic and so forth, a warm welcome to you. We really great, greatly appreciate your support and most importantly, the support from Artie Stevens and the team down there. So thank you very much if you are tuning in for the very first time. A warm welcome to you guys as well on the community radio station down there. So into this week's show of The Road Less Travelled. And in previous episodes, we've brought you Fremantle in Western Australia as far as port suburbs are concerned, or port cities, we should say. We've also done Sydney Harbour. But we thought this week that we would tune in to Melbourne, and in particular Port Melbourne. It's uh, If you've not been to Victoria before, make sure that you jump into Melbourne and you just head south to, uh, to the suburb of Port Melbourne. And you may have heard of Port Melbourne if you're coming across from Tasmania on the ferry. That is where the ferry to Tasmania stops and finishes as you head over to um, over straight into the Apple Isle. Now, when I mentioned Port, Ad- Port Adelaide, I've mentioned Port Adelaide, yeah, we'll, we'll do that on another episode, but I wanted to talk to you about Port Melbourne and Port of Melbourne, so don't be confused with the two. The Port of Melbourne is the largest port of con- um, sort of sea containers and general cargo in Australia. It's located Obviously, in Melbourne, covers an area at the mouth of the Yarra River, downstream of Balti Bridge, which is at the head of Port Phillip, as well as several piers on the bay itself. Now, since the 1st of July 2003, the Port of Melbourne has been managed by the Port of Melbourne Corporation, which is a statutory corporation created by the State Government of Victoria. Most of the port is in the suburb of West Melbourne and should not be confused with the Melbourne suburb of Port Melbourne, which we'll talk about in a moment, although Webb Dock and Station Pier, parts of the Port of Melbourne, are in Port Melbourne. Confused? Bear with me. Port Melbourne, or Sandridge as it was known until 1884, was a busy port early in the history of Melbourne, but it declined as a cargo port with the development of the Port of Melbourne in the late 19th century. It retains Melbourne's passenger terminal, however, with cruise ships and ferries using Station Pier. Infrastructure Victoria estimate that the Port of Melbourne will reach its capacity in 2055. In September of 2016, the port's commercial operations were leased to the Lonsdale Consortium for a term of 50 years for more than $9.7 billion. And the Lonsdale Consortium comprises of uh, global infrastructure partners of about 40%. A Chinese Investment Corporation of 20%, a Korean Pension Fund of 20%, 
Future Fund 20%, Queensland Investment Corporation of 20% and the Ontario uh, Municipal Employees Retirement Scheme of 20%. So Google some of those and you'll see why foreign ownership in Australia really gets my goat. But anyway, we'll, we'll move on to the facilities of the Port of Melbourne that consists of several major man-made docks on the Yarra River in Port Melbourne, including um, from upstream to downstream, there's Victoria Dock, Appleton Dock, South Wharves, Swanson Dock, Maribyrnong Berth, the Yarraville Wharves, Holden Oil Dock, Webb Dock and Station Pier. Now, in Melbourne's early days, large ships were unable to navigate the Yarra River, Yarra River, so cargo destined for Melbourne had to be unloaded at either Hobson's Bay, which is now Williamstown, or Sandridge, which is now Port Melbourne, and transferred either by rail or by cargo lighter to warehouses, which were concentrated mainly around King Street. This was an expensive and inefficient process. So in 1877, Victoria's government resolved to make the Yarra more navigable and engaged English engineer Sir John Coo to devise a solution. His solution was to change the course of the river by cutting a canal south of the original course of the river. This shortened it by a mile and made it much wider, so it created Cood Island and a name still used today, although the northern course of the river has long since disappeared. So with these works, ships were now sort of able to sail as far up the river as Queensbridge, where a turning basin was constructed. Coode also oversaw uh, the construction of Victoria Dock in Swampland to the west of the city, and this opened in 1889. And over time, the docks, the docks moved sort of more progressively downstream as ships became larger and road bridges were built across the Yarra. The construction of the Spencer Street Bridge in 1928 and the Charles Grimes Bridge in 1975 each closed access to the docks to the east. The bark ship Polly Woodside lying in the old Duke and Orr dry dock, the warehouses of South Wharf and the Mission to Seafarers building are now the only reminders of the maritime history in the area. The development slowed though during the Great Depression and obviously World War II but it resumed after the war with the construction of Appleton Dock in 1956 Webb Dock in 1960 at the mouth of the Yarra and Swanson Dock, the first container terminal on what was Cood Island. Eventually, Victoria Dock became too small to handle these large container ships and it was closed. Its fate was permanently sealed by the construction of the Bolte Bridge, which is part of CityLink across its entrance in 1999. It now forms the centrepiece of the Melbourne Docklands Redevelopment Centre. In 1991, a large fire at Coot Island Bulk Liquid Handling Facility blanketed much of Melbourne in toxic fumes. The public outrage forced the government to investigate relocating the facility. Now, Point Lily is near Geelong was considered. However, due to the high cost involved, the local opposition to the facility, it has remained at Coot Island. Now, Port of Melbourne was also the scene of a watershed industrial battle in 1998 between Patrick and the Maritime Union of Australia. Now, recent further controversy also resulted from plans to dredge Port Phillip to de- deepen shipping containers, uh, shipping containers to deepen shipping channels to allow for those larger container ships into the Port of Melbourne. The process commenced back in 2008, was completed in November 2009. And that project involved removing more than 22 million cubic metres of sand and silt to provide a minimum 14 metre draft at all times. Opposition to the project stems from potential environmental damage due to the silting and the loss of amenity for Bayside residents due to the noise produced by the dredges. The project was subject to the strictest 
of environmental testing and monitoring requirements in the world at that time. And the activities will continue on for many years to help protect the Port Phillip Bay ecosystems. In the future, the Victorian Government will uh, redevelop the Port of Melbourne to better integrate it with other modes of transport. It's happening at the moment. The Melbourne uh, Wholesale Fruit and Vegetable Market was relocated to Epping in 2013, and Footscray Road was planned to be raised so that the port users will have improved access to the rail facilities at South Dinan. So that's a bit of background as far as the Port of Melbourne is concerned. But Port Melbourne itself is an inner suburb um, about three kilometres southwest from Melbourne Central Business District. Now, Port Melbourne, historically, it was known as Sandridge and developed as the city's second port, linking it to nearby Melbourne CBD. The former industrial Port Melbourne has been subject to intense urban renewal over the past 30 years, and as a result, Port Melbourne now is a diverse and really historic area featuring industrial and port areas all along the Yarra to open parklands, bayside beaches, also exclusive apartments and bay streets, restaurants and cafes. The suburb also forms a major transport link from east to west, home to one end of the Westgate Bridge. Now, the area really came into prominence during the Victorian gold rush of the 1850s, and that was because of an increasing number of ships looking to berth. Sandridge became a thriving transport hub, and to alleviate the high cost of shipping goods via the small vessels up the Yarra River to Melbourne, the Port Melbourne Railway Line was built in 1854, and that connected Sandridge to Melbourne. And you can still see the disused Sandridge Bridge, which takes, it na- takes its name from the historic railway line. In 1860, Port Melbourne was an early area of Victoria to gain municipal status with the Sandridge Borough, which later became the city of Port Melbourne. Now, in the early years of Port Melbourne, the suburb was separated from neighbouring Albert Park by a large, shallow lagoon. This was gradually filled in over the years, with the last of it completed in 1929. Today, the area is largely covered by the Lagoon Reserve, a public park to the east of the Esplanade, and although the original extent of the lagoon was much greater. Now, as a transport hub, Port Melbourne has numerous and had numerous hotels. Early industries in the area included sugar refining, soap production, candle works, chemical works, rice and flour mills, gas works, a distillery and a boot factory. Now, Station and Prince's Pier were major places of arrival to Australian immigrants prior to the availability of affordable air travel. And for many years, Port Melbourne was a focus of Melbourne's criminal underworld, which operated smuggling syndicates on the docks. The old shippers, painters and dockers union were notorious for being controlled by gangsters. The Waterside Workers' Federation, on the other hand, was a stronghold of the Communist Party of Australia. Now, as the importance of the port had declined and has declined, and as the manufacturing industries have moved out of the inner city area, Port Melbourne now has increasingly become a residential suburb. The area where Port Melbourne originally developed, which was around Station Pier and Prince's Pier, has now been redeveloped with a mixture of apartment complexes and sort of medium-density housing, the best known of which is the Beacon Cove development. When we come back after the break, we're going to feature and have a bit of a look at Station Pier and Prince's Pier. More on the Port of Melbourne and Port Melbourne in just a moment. You're listening to the Road Less Travel Podcast with me, Nikki Shea. Be inspired with our seminars and motivational speaking. We really enjoy and receive a lot of satisfaction and overwhelming feedback in conducting seminars. This involves giving motivational speeches and inspiring people to challenge themselves and become better at what they want to become better at. Relying on years in the media plus a life-changing health issue, Nikki will challenge and transform her audiences. 
If you truly and honestly want to help someone reach their true potential, stop answering all their questions and solving all their problems. For further information, head to fatcatmedia.com.au or drop us an email, fatcat at iinet.net.au. The Road Less Travelled podcast is a proudly Australian, fiercely independent podcast hosted and produced by me, Nikki Shea, for Fat Cat Media. We receive no corporate payments, which means we rely on self-sufficient financial support. If you can and are able to, we would love you to support us via Patreon. Listen to the Road Less Travel podcast on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the Road Less Travel podcast with me, Nikki. Good to have your company. Don't forget you can interact with us. Drop me an email, fatcat at iinet.net.au, SMS on 0427528467. This week we are speaking about the Port of Melbourne and the suburb of Port Melbourne, which features Station Pier, which is an historic Australian pier in Port Phillip on, um, on Port Phillip Bay. Uh, opened in 1854, the pier is Melbourne's primary passenger terminal which services interstate ferries and cruise ships and it's also listed on the Victorian Heritage Register. Originally known as Railway Pier, it was officially opened on the 12th of September in 1854. The 4.5km Port Melbourne line from the pier to Flinders Street Station via the Sandridge Bridge, as I spoke about earlier, that was opened at the same time and that facilitated the transport of passengers and goods and it was the first real significant railway in Australia. The pier was kept busy throughout the 1850s due to the increased passenger traffic created by the gold rush and in 1861 it was extended to a length of 661 metres. That was in order to accommodate the ever-increasing traffic which was associated with the number of people who were settling in Victoria. In the early part of the 20th century, the original pier was unable to accommodate the new breed of larger and more powerful steamships. And as a result, the current pier was built between 1922 and 1930, and it is the largest timber-piled wharf construction and structure in Australia. The Stothert and Pitt cranes were erected in 1949 for goods handling. The original supports are still underneath the current pier, chopped down when the replacements were built. The new pier was designed so that passengers landed at the terminals above while goods traffics moved underneath in what was quite forward thinking for the 1920s. It has a wharf length of 933 metres and it is capable of berthing ships 305 metres long with a draft of 10.3 metres. Now when it was originally built the pier had five railway sidings running onto it as well as a passenger platform on the southern side which was named Bay Excursion Platform, a westward extension of Port Melbourne Station. Now after the pier was rebuilt it was provided with eight tracks, four along each wharf face. So the outer eastern end of the new pier was 390 feet east of the outer eastern end of the old pier to make the new pier exactly parallel with Prince's Pier. So in January 1921, electric passenger services were extended to the platform at the Bay Excursion Pier two years after electric trains had been extended to Port Melbourne. It was served by two trains per hour, Monday to Friday, until the withdrawal in November 1930, as they were not financially rewarding to the Victorian Railways. From May 1933, passenger services were again extended to Station Pier, but only required when overseas liners were berthed. The overhead wiring had to be extended beyond the Bay Excursion platform onto the pier itself. 
the boat train service was introduced on the 7th of March 1936 with a single trait, a trait, Tate train set painted in blue livery with a silver roof. The name was added to the top of each motor car in red letters along with the exterior lighting and that was operating direct from Flinders Street Station to Station Pier and that service was discontinued in October 1939. Now, I won't go ahead and go on and bore you with um, details of um, the passenger services and so forth, but by 1987, the railway line was actually closed. It was replaced by a tram route, which is Tram Route 109, which still runs to Box Hill via the city. The Centenary Bridge was demolished in 1991, and the Sandridge Trail runs parallel to the tram line, and when refurbished in 1998-99, the tram tracks were included in the new concrete decking on the western side for a possible extension of that tram route. In 2001, the area at the base of the pier was redeveloped to include a boardwalk and a number of new restaurant and cafe buildings, including um, the end pier, which at one stage had Rex Hunt there as well, and there was plenty of waterfront restaurants, which are still there today. Now, Station Pier has four operating berths, two on each side of the wharf. Each berth has a maximum draft, as I said earlier, 10.3 metres. Now, the pier operates 24 hours a day. It's open for pedestrian access. Sometimes it is between 6am and 9pm, except when the cruise ships or naval ships are visiting. And in addition, the pier has a central roadway which allows cars to be driven on the ships capable of carrying them. So if you're heading over to Tasmania or you're coming back from Tasmania um, on the Spirit of Tasmania, that's where you'll be loaded on and off at Station Pier. Now, if you are visiting Station Pier, you're standing there and you're looking out to the ocean and to the right-hand side you'll see another sort of pier structure, probably about 100 to 200 metres away, adjacent to Station Pier, and that is Princess Pier, which is 580 metre long historic pier. It was known as the New Railway Pier until it was renamed Princess Pier after the Prince of Wales, which was later Edward VIII, who visited Melbourne in May 1920. Now, the pier was constructed constructed rather between 1912 and 1915 by the Melbourne Harbour Trust, and that was to supplement the adjacent station. Now, whilst you might not always be able to jump onto Station Pier and have a wander around, Princess Pier is fully accessible. And from completion in 1915 until 1969, it was a major arrival point for new migrants, particularly during the post-war period. In addition to a pier, there was a gatehouse, and, and there is rather, a gatehouse and barriers, terminal building, amenities room, goods locker, ablution blocks, railway sidings and passenger gangways. From opening the pier was linked by rail to the Port Melbourne railway line via double lines branching from the Melbourne side of Graham Station. Now eight railway tracks ran onto the bridge, four along either face. A passenger rail service was provided to the pier after the 30th of May 1921, operated by suburban electric trains. Running when ships were docked at the pier, it was usually operated by a single double-ended swing door type motor car until the service ended in November 1930 because it was simply not financially rewarding for the Victorian railways. The overhead wiring was removed on the 7th of August 1953 and the line singled and worked as a siding from March 1961. With the containerisation boom, the pier became unused, being closed to the public access in the early 1990s due to the poor timber condition. Squatters caused a fire in the late 1990s that destroyed these store structures, and in three years to 2004, there was 14 fires that occurred. 
There was a refurbishment which was estimated to cost $14 million. That was announced by the Victorian State Government, with the first 196 metres of the pier to be fully restored. Beyond that point, the decking was removed and the original pylons have been preserved. There's a full restoration which estimated to cost $60 million and the contract for the work was awarded in 2007 and the work began in October of that same year. The refurb section of the pier opened to the public in December 2011. Now this pier, it runs parallel to Station Pier, of course, as I've mentioned many times, where the Spirit of Tasmania docks as well as big cruise ships. The pier, as I've mentioned too, has had a a great facelift uh, in recent times. There is no kiosk for travellers or locals, but there is on-street parking nearby, and you can get there, as I mentioned, by the tram. There's clever little entry sculptures, um, and remember, too, if you happen to visit there, to look at the ground and stand in front of After Reading Princess. It has a flow-on kind of effect. Um, And this dock, not this dock, this pier is where many Australians went off to war and to and from war and when many arrived here from other countries to start a new life after World War II. There are plenty of who sort of historical markers with information on them for you to read as you enter and further back to. Now, there's plenty of people that go down there for fishing, catching very little unless they're on a kayak and they head down between the posts at the end of the jetty. It's a popular place for locals to walk and exercise too as there's plenty of great walking and bike trails plus new beach that you can use too. It's also a very sought-after place for all levels of photographers to hone their skills, especially at sunset, and I really think that this pier lends itself well to visiting any time of day, especially cloudy ones too, because you can get some fantastic photos if you jump onto our Facebook page. I've put some up this week. And... Um, you can take in a great sunset when it's nice weather. Um, good coastal walk there too. There's plenty of people riding their push bikes, jogging, skateboarding on there too. Um, but it's a fantastic place to visit because of the historic aspect of it. And the significance of the piers at uh, Port Melbourne isn't to be underestimated for the troops um, and inventory embarking from Melbourne to go overseas for World War One, and when the Great War broke out in August 1914 the Australian government of course pledged its support for Britain. There was a rush of volunteers enlisted for the first Australian Imperial Force, the AIF, and they were moved into makeshift camps for training. Due to the size of the first convoy of ships in World War One, all three piers at Port Melbourne will use the Town Pier, Princess Pier and Station Pier. And between the 17th and the 21st of October 1914, 16 vessels that would form the first convoy left Port Phillip Bay carrying troops, horses and supplies. With German raiders patrolling the Pacific, there was an air of secrecy surrounding the departure of the first convoys. So anxious friends and relatives got wind of the news and descended on the ports in droves to catch a glimpse of their loved ones off before they set off overseas. Civilians were not permitted onto the piers, but the crowd swell grew, and as the last vessel of the convoy was ready to leave, the crowd overwhelmed the guards and swarmed onto the piers. Strains of the national anthem rose up and streamers apparently sailed through the sky as well-wishers watched their loved ones depart for the uncertainty of war. Princess Pier in particular, in particular rather, played a, a real vital role as the arrival and departure point for Australian troops during this time. On the 29th of September, the Princess Pier was christened when the first Australian convoy carrying troops to fight in World War I left for the battlefields in the newly completed first section of the pier. The troop ships Rangaritira and the Star of England, both from Queensland, were the first vessels to ever berth at the half-completed pier. And at the end of the war, most of the troops who returned to Melbourne disembarked, disembarked rather, at Princess Pier. 
With a growing list of Australian casualties, hospital ships carrying wounded servicemen began arriving back at Port Melbourne where the mood was often sombre. The war ended in November 1918 with the signing of the armistice, but there was a delay in arranging ships to bring the Anzacs home from, Il- uh, from England. It was another six months before World War I servicemen and women were welcomed home at Port Melbourne. The troops' much-anticipated return was prolonged even further, with an influenza pandemic sweeping the globe. The ships were quarantined at Port Nepean for fear of returning servicemen would cause an influenza outbreak in Australia, and the Victorian Daily Papers published lists of personnel travelling on each ship. When the troop ships were expected, the Royal Auto Club of Victoria appealed to motorists to drive to the pier to help transport wounded soldiers to the military depot in Sturt Street, South Melbourne, where they were to be discharged. And both Station Pier and Prince's Pier, of course, were Melbourne's, I guess, introduction to Victoria's most important arrival point for migrants. And since the 1850s, the site has welcomed and processed millions of anxious and excited new arrivals. And that pier today, both um, Station Pier, but in particular Princess Pier, that has been restored, it represents the hopes, fears, joys and sorrows for all of those whose first memories of Melbourne were stepping onto its boards. People have like such quotes as it's very affecting to see those who had friends waving handkerchiefs and weeping as they gazed at them, perhaps for the last time of earth. That was from Anne Grattan, who migrated from England to Melbourne in 1858. When you consider that the travel at the time would be sometimes months, and then it became as ship travel became increasingly sort of modern it would become weeks and they would hold on fast to long-held assumptions about what their adopted homeland might be like the Australian coastland triggering either delight or disappointment Miriam Baker migrated from Egypt in 1966 she said all we saw were trees and greenery and I just fell into my mother's arms crying we were both crying because we thought we'd come to the end of the earth there was no city in sight when we dropped off at Prince's Pier and the arrival of a ship at either station or station or Princess Pier was a sight to behold. The streamers sailed through the air, creating colourful paper webs. Teeming crowds jostled for position with friends, relatives, prospective husbands and employers, waving, shouting, laughing and crying. Eager migrants leaned over the ship rail, searching for the crowd for loved ones while, the other, while others looked onwards to a new beginning, while the band played anything from waltzing Matilda to Greek music. And this emotional experience was frequently in stark contrast to the bureaucratic processes of immigration and customs. New arrivals were often guilty of bringing in items which had to be confiscated by customs. There was unfamiliar foodstuffs that could be deemed as contraband, sub- suspect to sort of predominantly British cuisine culture. Plant seeds were a threat to the Australian natural environment, so migrants sometimes smuggled things in. From little things like vegetable seeds, olive oil or salamis to larger household items such as carpentry tools, coffee makers and blankets, expectations about life in Australia were reflected in what migrants brought with them. People who knew little about distant country, they were making their new home and they made assumptions about the climate, food and employment, sometimes correct, sometimes misinformed. And finally, with belongings checked and documents in order, the migrants stepped off the pier and onto the next stage of their journey. Dressed in their Sunday best, with their hearts thumping, the passengers would gather on deck to view their new home. 
Newsreader David Johnson migrated from England in 1953. He said, when we arrived at Station Pier, it was about 100 degrees, and Mum insisted I wear my full English school uniform. Jumper, blazer and long socks pulled right up. I nearly passed out in the heat. And also mixed too with these emotions was the realisation that the welcome to both Princess and Station Pier must begin with a farewell. Connie McWade migrated from Denmark in 1960. She said, Soon the people you had made friends with while on board went their separate ways. Either to meet family members or sponsors, most never to be seen again. So processing a ship of 700 or more people could take all day and the job continued regardless of the weather. The pier was especially busy when in 1949 the arrival of the Georgic of the Georgic ship attracted a crowd of 8,000 people. News had spread that the ship was transporting the largest number of migrates, migrates, migrants to date, a massive 2,000 people. Richard James migrated from England in 1954. He said two large liners had arrived in Port Melbourne simultaneously and every man with a tray truck and a dog was down at the pier soliciting for business. Transporting migrants' luggage in those days was quite a lucrative pastime. So migrants immediately faced, faced the need to bargain for the transport of larger belongings and to both to find both, I guess, work and lodgings. And many people went on to stay in migrant hostels where they could learn English and receive assistance finding work and permanent accommodation. So I know that some of my ancestors came over from Tasmania. Um, when they came in the 1850s, they would come from Tasmania to Melbourne to start life. That's how we ended up in Victoria in the uh, late 1800s and from my mother's side uh, my great-grandmother came from from England so um, it's, a, it's a great place to go down and have a look at Princess Pier in Melbourne if you have the opportunity of course Station Pier as I've mentioned many times that's where you will get off or get on to the ferry to head over to Tasmania. And that wraps up our chat about the Port of Melbourne, Port Melbourne, and of course Princess Pier and Station Pier. If you have the opportunity to visit those two destinations, make sure that you do so. And the history involved in Princess Pier that you can actually wander around and have a look at at your leisure and take some fantastic photos of the area too. If you've got some interaction, if maybe you've been or you've got some stories of when you arrived in Australia through those big massive iron gates, I'd love to hear from you. Drop me an email, fatcat at iinet.net.au or you can send me a message on our Facebook page as well. My name's Nikki Shea. You've been listening to the Road Less Travel podcast and I hope it's given you just a taste of what to expect when you head out there somewhere on the road and I hope to catch you too very soon out there on the Road Less Travel. My name's Nikki Shea. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. The Road Less Travel is presented by Nikki Shea and produced by Fat Cat Media. 